You speak in my heart, O Lord, and say, Seek my face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I was quite a young boy when I first learned that wonderful word, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Took, took me a while. But from then on, I knew the value of freshly minted new words to enrich our life in an audacious, precocious fashion. I want to teach you three new words that I hope will be just as audacious and joyful. But first, a little backstory, And I have to go back 500 years. Back in the day, there weren't a hundred English translations of the Bible floating around. Even though Latin had ceased to be the mother tongue of any population, that was what was read and celebrated in church. In the 15th century, you could be burnt at the stake for translating the Bible. Enter John Wycliffe. Wycliffe and others thought having a Bible for people to read in their mother tongue was crucial for Christian life. John Wycliffe risked his life to give us a Bible in English. One estimate says that 83% of the words in the New Testament of the first authorized English Bible are from Tyndale. They eventually came into the King James Version. That's another story. But I imagine that one day Tyndale was busy translating our epistle. And he got stumped on a word. There's just no good English word to translate it. And that's the first new word I want to teach you. Cataligate. Cataligate. Though it'll stick with you, maybe. Okay. <laughs> um, and let's look how um, it translates in our readings today, which is not 10 days, but I'll, I'm holding off trying to build suspense about a word. So follow along in your bulletin if you like. And the, the verse I am focusing on is this. Be reconciled to Christ. That's a modern translation. Be catalogated to Christ. But Tyndale translates it with a made-up word that he makes up on the spot. He says, be at one with God. And I would add, y'all. Why? Because... It's second person, uh, plural, uh, passive imperative. All right, no, no more grammar after this. Okay, I promise. So I would say, catalogate, y'all. 
It's the same thing as saying, be at one with God. If we take Tyndale's word at oneing and work it into today's reading, we get something like the following. This is from God, who at one himself to us in Christ. Through Christ, and has given us the ministry of at wanting. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making this appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ to be at one to God. Tyndale's new word, at one meant, later, came into English as the word atonement. And over the years, I'm afraid the word got churchified, old, stale, lacking the energy. It comes to look like, in theories of atonement, that we have some kind of transactional relation with God where God does this, we do that, and it's kind of like a bargain. But that misses what I think is the, the genius of Tyndale in translating. It misses the newness, the freshness of at one In Paul's words in the epistle, it says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything is new. There is a newness to this at wanting love that I hope we can recapture this Lent. I think Tyndale knew this and translated, but he also lived it. Tyndale was strangled and burnt at the stake. Through a cruel mercy, they strangled him first. <laughs> so he didn't have to be burnt, have the pain of uh, being burned. They, they killed him not so much for that particular translation, but because he had read the scriptures and had opposed King Henry VIII's marriages. And just before he was strangled, he had a chance to say his last words, and here they are. God, open the eyes of the King of England. I think those words are remarkable. He is at wanting himself with the King of England. He is trying to pray for his enemies, to hope that God's at wanting power will eventually prevail. And in some sense, I think it did with Tyndale's translations. Let's talk about at wanting for a moment. What do I have to do to be at one with God? The short answer is, you don't have to do a doggone thing. 
God has already done it. God at one himself with humanity by taking on flesh and by coming down among us, by living and breathing, by establishing a church that has an at one table for you to come and sit down and enjoy and partake of Christ. So even though I've said you don't have to do anything but respond, I want to invite you to think about some possible responses to this at wanting love. Sidebar here. Jesus had some very specific advice to say about fasting and repentance. And I want to mention that here. It says that when you're fasting and repenting, you should wash your face. You should comb your hair. Some of you guys that don't have any hair, just put a little lotion, oil, something to look nice. But I think Jesus is saying repentance is more like washing up to go to a big party. It's like getting ready for a big event. It's not screwing yourself up in some kind of sorrow and mournful and pitiful thing. It is washing that away. The at wanting power makes all things new. What is, I think over time, that we have come to think of sin as glamorous and life-giving. In fact, sin is not fun. It is killing. It is deadly. It is soul-sucking. And we'll take the life right out of you because it keeps us from loving fully and completely. What is joyous and a good thing is to give up these things that are causing us sorrow. And I want to suggest a little exercise for your Lenten practice. I want you to take some time and reflect on some things that you would like to repent of that keep you from being at one with God or at one with your neighbor. What those actions or character traits might be, only you can know. And then think of the opposite, the opposite characteristic. And um, think of those together. Let me name a few of the things that we might let go. Being too fearful, being a sore head, nursing a grudge, being hard-hearted. And the opposite of those are being bold and generous. Take some time then, take a few breaths, Bow your head gently and say, I release my fears. Then as you slowly raise your head, say, Oh God, 
Fill me as I take on a new spirit of hope. I let go of my hard-heartedness. Fill me with a tender heart. I let go of my sore-headedness. Fill me with a generous, loving forgiveness. Some might say there is no help in God. But God is our glory and the lifter up of our heads. God wants us to lay these down and then to rise up strong with a heart full of love. Lay down those things that cramp your love and make you small-minded. Open your mind to all truth and a love for all creation. These cramped, closed mindsets are not our calling. At best, they are lesser joys. At worst, they are soul-sucking sins. Elsewhere, St. Paul makes a distinction between sorrows that lead to death and sorrows that lead to life. Guilt and shame will paralyze us and leave us miserable. And so repent of them and embrace God's at-wanting love. This is what the Russian Orthodox might call the bright sorrow of Lent. And this is the new word that I introduce to you, bright sorrow of Lent. The bright sorrow of Lent is a firm determination to say, I'm sorry for the sins that, I, that have occupied my time. I gladly let them go and move forth into a new life. We see some of these echoes of this bright sorrow in our gospel lesson today. Some people call it the parable of the prodigal son. Some scholars say, oh, nope, it's the parable of the loving father. And I'm going to use my naming powers to say, nope, none of those. It's the parable of the sore-headed elder brother. Because I want to emphasize today repenting of sore-headedness. Sorry, I'm having trouble here with this thing. Our prayer book today has us skipping around in chapter 15 of Luke. The chapter has three parables in it. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and then the parable to keep it consistent of the lost son. But all three are presented by Luke because Jesus has heard some grumbling of the religious folk. What are they grumbling about? The Greek word is diagagizon. It's an onomatopoetic word. Diagagizon, okay? And in English, it gets translated as murmur or grumble. And that too is onomatopoetic. That's what grumblers do, right? Grumble, 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 grumble. Murmur, 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 murmur. 
Um, and we know that language. But I want us to repent of that language and leave it behind. The prodigal son famously repents of running away from his father when, as Luke notes, he came to himself when he realized what he was missing at home. I suggest that all repentance is finding our true selves. Our true selves, in our deepest, we are made by God to love and to be loved. When we wander away from this, we are denying our deepest needs. We need God. We need other people. And we need to be at one. When the son trudges back home, raggedy and broken, um, his, uh, his father uh, runs at once to greet him, puts on a new cloak, puts a new uh, ring on the son's finger. And the next thing you know, they've got a full-blown barbecue and party. It's a time of great joy. Father and son are reconciled. If Jesus had ended the parable here, it would have been, they all lived happily ever after, storybook ending. Jesus had other things on his mind when he wanted to tell this story. He wanted to address those sore-headed murmurers grumbling about eating and drinking with sinners. There is a complication to the happily ever after ending. The sore-headed brother whines to his father, what's so special about him? You never threw me a party. I've done nothing but work and slave for you and never so much as a hamburger cookout. But this sorry excuse for a son comes home and you kill the fatted calf? I imagine the father gets pretty taken aback by those harsh words. Perhaps he even wonders, did I neglect this boy while I was attending to the problem kid? We don't know what goes on his head, but we, Jesus tells us what comes out of his mouth. Son, you are always with me, and all I have is yours. Let that sink in. Son, you are always with me, and all I have is yours. parable stops short, though, of inviting the son, the older uh, sorehead, to the party. And I think Jesus leaves it open-ended because he wants us to ask, are you going to come to this party? Are you going to rain on the parade and poop the party? And so I put it to you. Will your sore-headedness keep you outside, or will you come in? And I would encourage you to just shuck that sore-head mindset and let it roll off you. God's reconciling and wanting love is here in this place. 
just by being created by God and sustained, there is a love embrace that goes beyond all that we can imagine. I encourage you this week to bow your head and name any sore-headedness that keeps you from this love. I encourage you to get ready for Easter joy when God will lift up our heads and we can say that word that rhymes with, what's it to you? Cataligate, y'all. Be at one with God and your neighbor by passing through the bright sorrow of Lent. Easter is coming and it's going to be supercalifragilisticexpialidocious.